would be on page uh, 1016. Let's read God's word together. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your heart, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile you, revile your good behavior in Christ, may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we do uh, thank you for your word today. Lord, we thank you for uh, our pastor, Lord, and just pray, God, that you would uh, give him the words you'd have us to hear, Father, that we might draw closer to you. And Lord, we do uh, lift up those who are hurting today, and Lord, we know that there are many amongst us, Father, who have many trials right now, and we're just praying for your blessing and strength upon them. And we just ask you to bless this service in Christ's name, amen. Thank you, Lynn. <clears throat> So again, this is October. It's our month of missions. Our theme verses are exactly what Len just read, First uh, Peter 3, specifically 15 and 16, but we're going to look at verses 13 through 17 this morning. Recall with me that Peter is writing to Christians who are in what's modern-day Turkey, and they are experiencing hostility and slander and hardship and ridicule for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some were even facing physical persecution as many of our brothers and sisters around the world are facing even now. And so that's the context into which Peter is writing this letter. As we think about the world in which we live today, especially here in America, it's not a stretch to say that if you follow the Lord Jesus Christ, you will face slander and ridicule and hardship as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are those around us here in Barry and Elgin County who are hostile to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are also those around us who I wouldn't say are hostile, but they are hardened to the gospel. Uh, there are those who are unchurched. Uh, they've never been to a church, except for maybe for funerals or weddings. Uh, even that's increasingly less at churches. Uh, so there's those who are unchurched, who never go to church, they don't think about church, and they're, in their thoughts, completely happy doing so, right? In fact, if you follow statistics, it's called the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S, the nuns, but the other nuns. You have any idea what I'm talking about? The nuns, the nuns, nothing about the nuns. Uh, but as we think about them, increasingly have no affiliation with any kind of religion whatsoever. The unchurched, the rise of the nuns. There's also those who are the de-churched, right? Maybe they grew up in church, uh, 
had a bad experience at church, got burned out on church, and no longer want anything to do with church. So all around us, there are those who are hostile to the Christian faith, and there are those who are hardened against the Christian faith, the unchurched and the dechurched. How do we engage them? How do we come alongside them with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? How do we defend the faith with them? And that's what I want us to wrestle with this morning as you look at God's word. If you're following along in the, the outline in the bulletin, I have six priorities for every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ when it comes to defending the faith. Then after we consider those six priorities, we'll consider uh, some, some practical ways uh, in which we can, within our circle of influence, seek to defend the faith. So looking at our text, again, we have six priorities uh, for followers of the Lord Jesus Christ when it comes to defending the faith. And the first one is live an attractive life under the Lordship of Christ. Priority number one for defending the faith, live an attractive life under the Lordship of Christ. Peter puts a strong emphasis on doing good in his epistle. In 1 Peter 3.13, Uh, It says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And then if you back up a few verses, the 1 Peter 3, 1, uh, Peter addresses the wives uh, who are married to unsaved husbands. So 1 Peter 3, 1 says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word... They may be won without a word by the what? The conduct of the wives. The loving, gracious, good, Christ-like conduct of a Christian wife to her unsaved husband is the strongest evangelistic tool God has given her. A look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, as we continue to see this, this emphasis in Peter on living an attractive life, doing good under the Lordship of Christ. First Peter chapter 2, verse 20, the scriptures say, For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It's a gracious thing to suffer for God, doing good for God. Then 1 Peter 2.12. 1 Peter 2.12 says, Keep your conduct, which is a rich word meaning being lovely, winsome, gracious. Uh, let your, let your, uh, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, which again is a rich word for being lovely, winsome, gracious, so that... When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see the emphasis on living an attractive life under the lordship of Christ as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It makes me think a lot of Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Keep keep your finger in 1 Peter 3 and turn with me to Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. A very similar uh, passage of scripture uh, from the Lord Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, where he talks about the salt and the light. We're going to focus just for a moment on the light part. Matthew chapter 5, 
verses 14 through 16. Here Jesus says, you, speaking to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. It draws the application. In the same way, disciples, let your light shine before others. Why? So they may see your what? What's it say? See your good works and do what? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Listen, the nature of light is to shine. Yes? That's the nature of light. That's the purpose of light. We're not to cover light up. We're to let the light of Christ, as followers of Christ, and Christ lives in us, to let the light of his glory, similar to what Pastor Brent talked about last week, let the light of his glory shine in us and through us. There should be no such thing as an invisible Christian or an incognito Christian. The light of Christ should shine through us and from us. Think about lighthouses. Lighthouses don't need to do anything to call attention to themselves. They simply do what? They shine. They blast that light out for all to see. It should be with us as Christians. We should shine for Jesus by doing good works, by living an attractive life under the Lordship of Christ. By doing that which is honorable, gracious, and winsome. And in doing so, the light of Christ shines forth. And we let people see what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we do those good works, when we live that attractive life under the Lordship of Christ, Jesus says, they will see your good works and glorify the Father who is in heaven. My goodness, that's what we want, isn't it? We want all that we come in contact with as we live and move and have our being, we want them to see Christ in us and we want them to praise God the Father for the great transformation he wrought and can bring in your life. That's what we want as followers of Jesus Christ. This is our supreme purpose. I once heard someone said that the, the real mark of a Christian the real mark of a Christian is that the way you live your life is it makes it easier for others to believe in God. That's pretty powerful, and I think that really uh, gives a good picture of what Peter and Jesus are saying in the text that we're looking at. Again, the real mark of a Christian, you say you're a disciple or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the real mark of your life should be that which the way you live your life, it makes it easier for people to believe in God. Is that true of your life? Are you living an attractive life under the lordship of Christ at school, at your workplace, in your homes, in your neighborhoods, in the marketplaces? So when they see you, they see Christ. And it's easier for them to believe in the Father. Are you in the words of, back to 1 Peter 3.13, zealous, zealous for what is good? That's how you make a difference that can't be ignored zealous for good. Are you zealous? Not apathetic, not indifferent. Zeal, right? The Christian life is to be marked by passion. 
I cannot for the life of me understand someone who professes to be a follower of Jesus Christ and have Christ himself living within you and abiding within you. I cannot understand for the life of me if you name the name of Christ and not be passionate for good and passionate for Christ. Remember what Jesus says to the, some of the churches, specifically in Revelation 3, 15 and 16 to the church of Laodicea. He says, I know your works. And that's true of everyone here this morning too. He knows your works. But to Laodicea, he says, you are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, remember what Jesus says? I will spit you, I will vomit you out of my mouth. God can't understand why we wouldn't be passionate either, can he? Romans chapter 12, verse 11 says, Do not be slothful in zeal, rather be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Fervent literally means to boil. Be fervent in spirit, Romans 12, 11. Be enthusiastic, be excited, be boiling over in zeal and enthusiasm and excitement for the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, being saved by Jesus Christ is the greatest thing in the world, amen? Being saved by Jesus Christ is the greatest thing. It means having eternal life. It means you cannot die. It means you will live forever and reign forever with the Lord Jesus Christ on high and with his people in overwhelming joy and peace. Nothing can separate you from the love of God, right? Remember that in Romans 8. Everything in your life, the good, the bad, and in between, is being worked out for a purpose. Romans 8 says we're, we're unconquerable, right? In, in love, we are conquerors. All this and more is true of us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we should be zealous for good. When I think of zeal, I think of a number of... Uh, Disciples of Christ that have, have come before us. I, I think of Jonathan Edwards and his resolutions and how the Lord used him to be perhaps one of the greatest American minds, philosophers, theologians, and pastors. Uh, I think of John Wesley. Uh, John Wesley <clears throat> averaged three sermons a day for 54 years, preaching in total 44,000 times. He did this traveling by horseback more than 200,000 miles, 5,000 miles a year on horseback. That's zeal, isn't it? I think of Jim Elliott. Remember Jim Elliott? In a diary entry, Jim Elliott, the Aka Indian martyr, he wrote, God, I pray thee, light these idle sticks of my life that I may burn for you. Consume my life, my God, for it is yours. I seek not a long life, but a full one. How's that for zeal? Man, God answered that one, didn't he? Zeal. 
Are you zealous for good works? Are you living an attractive life under the Lordship of Christ? Is the Holy Spirit right now convicting you and prodding you in various points of your life where, you know what, maybe you've got to be honest, you have not been zealous, you've been slothful, you've been indifferent, you've been apathetic about good works, about being zealous for God. And you need to repent. You need to confess that to Him. And He will bless you and He will come alongside you. Cry out to God to light that fire, light those idle sticks. You might burn brightly for Him. Now, when you burn brightly for him, when you're zealous for good works, there's a good possibility that many will see it and praise God. There's also a good possibility that others will see that and be angered. And so Peter goes on to write in verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. So who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Now, how can Peter say that? How can Peter say you'll be blessed if you suffer for doing righteousness, for being zealous for good works? Well, there's lots of reasons we could give. In fact, I'm pretty sure we could preach a couple sermons on that. There's lots of ways you're blessed. Uh, but in particular, I would draw your attention to verse 18. Look at verse 18, 1 Peter 3. It says, For Christ also suffered once for sin. So there's the gospel, right? Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus was zealous for good works, and he did the ultimate work of dying on the cross for our sins, and that's the finished work. We're saved by his righteousness, by faith in his righteousness, not by our good works. So we're not zealous for good works because, man, that will impress God and get me into heaven. No, that's nonsense. We're zealous for good works because Jesus was zealous for the glory of the Father so much that he died on the cross to rescue for us from our sins, and that puts fire in our bones. So why are we blessed uh, when we suffer for righteousness' sake? Because you're like Christ. Christ was righteous, never once sinned, lived a, a blameless life of obedience to the Father, yet he suffered for sin. And in doing so, brought sinners to salvation. And so you and I, we are blessed if you suffer for doing what is good, because God may very well use that to bring sinners to salvation in Christ. You see? That's pretty amazing, isn't it? So be zealous for good works. Sure, some may uh, get angry, but it's worth it because it makes you more like Christ. It puts the gospel on display, and God will use that to draw sinners to himself. Let me say it this way. Be, be radical in the sense of, be radical in being filled with grace and joy and peace and hope, because this world doesn't have any of that. You want to stand out in this world? Be zealous for good. That's the real radical today. That's, what, that's, that's Christian radical, or really Christian normal living. Number two. I want to say more about that, but number two. <clears throat> Exchange fear of man for the fear of the Lord. If you're going to have this priority of defending the faith... Exchange fear of man for fear of the Lord. I, I don't think anyone here would disagree that one of the biggest hindrances when it comes to sharing your faith or defending the faith is fear. 
Fear keeps you from uh, being a faithful witness. Fear prevents you from being zealous for good. Uh, fear prevents you from letting your light shine to the glory of the Father. So Peter urges us in the end of verse 14, have no fear of them. Have no fear of them, he says. Do not be troubled. It makes me think of Proverbs 29:25, where it says, the fear of man lays a snare. The fear of man is a trap. The fear of man enslaves you, it captures you, it hinders you, it constrains you. The fear of man causes you to be shaken up and frightened and troubled. The fear of man makes you worry. What are they going to think about me? What are they going to do to me? What are they going to say to me if, I, if I'm zealous for good works? How do we overcome that? Peter says, have no fear of them. Don't be troubled. Rather, verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Have no fear of them, of those who might persecute you or mock you or ridicule. Don't be troubled by them. Rather, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. I need to know that's a quote of Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13. Isaiah chapter 8, verses 12 and 13, God says to the prophet Isaiah, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, And listen to this, do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. The Lord of hosts, let him be your fear, let him be your dread. Now remember the context of that in Isaiah 8. There's a massive superpower called Assyria. And they have come and encircled the capital of Israel, Jerusalem. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem, like you and I, are what? They're afraid. They're fearful. What are they going to say to us? What are they going to do to us? In the midst of that context, God says to his people through the prophet Isaiah, don't be afraid of those Assyrians. Have no fear of them. Put your fear in me. Be in awe of me, in other words. Watch what I'm going to do. It's amazing counsel. In other words, God says, redirect your fear. Your fear is in the wrong place. It's focused on man. You need to redirect it in the right place. Fight your fear with fear. Exchange your fear of man for the fear of the Lord. And notice what it says back in 1 Peter 3, verse 15, where that fear must be. It says, in your hearts, honor, fear, treasure, revere. That's, that's the idea there. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord. As holy. Fight fear with fear by in your heart fearing, revering, treasuring the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, the heart is the control center of your life. It's the control center of how you live and think and act and feel. And when your heart is controlled by the Lord Jesus Christ, you will have a deep-seated confidence in him. And you'll have no reason to fear what people may say or do or think about you. You put your fear in God, it dispels all other fears. Let me, let me come at it this way. <clears throat> and I'm not going to make you raise your hand, but if you could just think, have you ever been to a, a class or a seminar or something that, that teaches you how to share the gospel? And if you can come to me for any amount of time, you've come to some of our classes that do that. More than likely, a lot of us here have been to some kind of class or read a book, maybe watched a video on on YouTube or something about 
how to share the gospel with your friends and your family, right? Probably most of us have done that. And I'm willing to bet that even though you've done that, and that's important that you've done that, you still struggle with sharing the gospel with, with the lost. Even though you've read that book, maybe even you read the presentations that are in there, and that's giving you some confidence, and that's good, but you still struggle when it comes to opening your mouth and sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's true, partly because that's true of me, but I think that's true because defending the faith is first and foremost a heart matter, not an information matter. The how-to is important, but the want-to is just as important, if not more. You've got to want to tell others, Jesus is holy, Jesus is Lord. Does that make sense? The problem is your wanter. Do you want to? You know how to, but do you want to? Are you revering, treasuring, honoring Christ as Lord in your heart? You know, everyone is an evangelist. I walked around yesterday around Myers. There's a lot of evangelists, evangelism going on around Myers. Buy this shirt. It's on sale. Right? Buy this, this, new, this new drink. It's healthy. That's the evangelism today, right? Everything's healthy. ton of junk in it. It's healthy. There's one little thing that's healthy. It's healthy. Right? That's the evangelism going on in our day. Try out this new exercise thing or this new diet. That's the evangelism that, that, that's going on, right? Everyone is evangelizing what they love, what they're passionate about, what's kind of changed their life. <clears throat> we have some grandparents here, right? And you have grandkids. You evangelize about your grandkids all the time, right? Why? Because you love them. You treasure them. They're the joy of your life. What you treasure, what you honor, what you revere, you talk about. You don't have to be guilt-tripped in it, and you don't, you don't spend weeks or months without ever talking about it. When you love and honor and revere and fear the Lord Jesus Christ, you open up and you talk about him. Not because you're guilted into it, but you want to. See the difference? So you've got to fight fear with fear and replace a fear of others with fear of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer... I've spoken about him before. I know you guys have heard about him before. He was a, a German pastor who was bold and courageous to speak up against Adolf Hitler. He was alive during uh, World War II. He would write about it. He would organize opposition to Hitler. He even made plans to help assassinate him. That's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He helped Jews escape from Germany. Bonhoeffer did this for 10 years. And for part of that time, he's engaged and planning to get married. Talk about zealous for good works, huh? And fighting fear with fear. Eventually, the Nazis caught on to him, they imprisoned him, and they executed him not long before actually Germany was overthrown. But here's what he said. Those who are afraid of men have no fear of God, and those who fear God have no fear of men. That's what our text is saying. Have no fear of men. Fear God. When you fear God, you won't have fear of man. Treasure him, revere him. Number three, be ready anytime with anyone. Be ready anytime with anyone. That's the third priority of defending the faith. 
Uh, when my children uh, play t-ball or softball and they're at the games, the coach will constantly have to say, get ready, get ready, get ready. And they have to say that because the kids are out there at that age, they're picking their nose, they're, they're looking up in the sky, looking at the clouds, they're pulling grass, they're kicking the dirt, they're doing anything but paying attention to what's happening at that base plate, right? And so the, the coach constantly has to say, get ready, get ready, get ready. And that's what 1 Peter 3, 15 is saying to us. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as, as holy. Always what? Always being prepared, it says. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone. You catch those two words? Always in anyone. Always in anyone. You're always ready, wherever, whoever, whenever, uh, to talk about the gospel, to give a defense of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word defense is uh, also translated answer, perhaps, in your translation, is the Greek word apologia, from which we get the word apologetics. Apologetics is not being really, really good at saying, I'm sorry. Apologetics is being good at preparing a defense for why you believe what you believe. Why do you believe in Jesus Christ? Well, here's why. It doesn't mean you have to be able to give a 30-minute dissertation on the existence of God, but that you should know what you believe and why you believe it. You should be ready with anyone, anytime, to answer, this is why I believe. That's what it's saying to us. The question to me and to you is, are you ready? You know as well as I do that we are living in a sexual revolution. It's in full bloom. Uh, the American public has largely accepted same-sex marriage, right? There is great pressure upon the church of God to fold on issues of sexuality and gender and marriage. That pressure will only intensify. There is an unavoidable collision of worldviews all around us, at your school, at your workplace, maybe even in your home. Wherever you go, that collision is there. And listen, we need to be ready. Always and anyone, why you believe. When you know what you believe, it fills you with hope. Our verse says, always prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the what? The, what's it say? The hope, I almost titled this Defend the Hope, because really that's what Peter's saying. He's not saying so much defend the faith, defend the hope, right? My goodness, our world needs hope, doesn't it? This world is filled with hopelessness and despair and discouragement. Anxiety meds are through the roof. Why? People lost hope. They've lost purpose. One of the most distinguishing marks of a Christian should be your possession of hope. And I don't mean like, fingers crossed, right? Gee, I hope so. I hope the Lions will do something this year, right? Or whatever, whatever your favorite team is. That's not what it means. Hope means a patient, disciplined, confident expectation in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this kind of hope is so real and so rare 
That when the world sees it, they're like, what is that? What is this hope? What? Why, why are you filled with hope? Why do you have joy and grace and peace? You shouldn't have that. But you do because of who Jesus is. In your notes, I, I put a quote from Tony Marita. It's a really good quote. He, think, he talks about the relationship of hope to apologetics. He says, uh, to be an effective witness, you need more than a knockdown argument on paper. You need a joyful song in your heart. A dear friend of ours, up in, up in, when he ministered up in Newbury, came to faith in Christ because of the joy that the people had while they were singing. And she recognized, I don't have that joy. I don't have that hope. Where's that coming from? Which led to her salvation. So he's right. To be an effective witness, you need more than a knockdown argument on paper. You need a joyful song in your heart. You need more than logical answers. You need a heart captivated by Jesus. To be a good witness, you need to first adore Jesus and be filled with hope. Evangelism is not for the elite special force Christians, but for everyone who abounds with gospel hope. Unbelievers may not grasp your theology, but they can spot your hope. Our hope gets people attention, so be someone who radiates it in your conduct and in your reactions to successes and setbacks. That's powerful. Are you radiating the hope of Christ? Not only in your success, but in your setbacks. Number four, speak with gentleness and respect. The fourth priority of defending the faith, speak with gentleness and respect. Uh, It's not just what you say, but it's how you say it, right? Because Peter says, verse 15, do it with what? What's the two words? Gentleness and what? Respect. When you give an answer for the hope that is in you, you do it with gentleness and respect. You don't speak condescendingly or harshly or arrogantly. You don't try and overpower them with the force of your personality or the force of your arguments. You don't try and ram the Bible down their throat or thump them with the Bible, right? That's not what we do. Warren Wearsby had a good comment on this. He says, when you're doing evangelism, remember you are witnesses, not the prosecuting attorney. I thought that was pretty good. You're not the prosecuting attorney. Answer with gentleness. A scholar, Edward Bloom, wrote this. Gentleness is the quality that trusts God to do the work of changing attitudes. I was deeply struck by that. Gentleness is the quality that trust God to do the work of changing attitudes. Can you change people's hearts? Absolutely not, right? God is, and God alone can change people's hearts. And God changes people's hearts through your gentleness, not through being harsh and, and arrogant and abrasive. But I love what Bloom is bringing out because gentleness reveals your theology. If you believe that God is sovereign and good and powerful and wise and loving, that makes you very gentle because you see that God is the one who does it through you. If you think it all leans on you or depends on you, you're going to become pretty what? Anxious? Abrasive? Arrogant? Right? 
But if you believe in a sovereign God that makes you gentle, trusting God and patient and listening well as God changes hearts through you. We shouldn't evangelize like we're trying to sell someone a used car or life insurance or a set of knives. I used to do that. I used to sell, sell knives for about six months. Then I quit. I was not very good at it. As I was told at the marriage retreat, I'm not a very good salesman. That's very true. He's not even here today for me to pick on him for saying that. But when you share the gospel, it should not be this canned presentation. Did Jesus ever do canned presentations? What did Jesus do? He gently listened and observed and spoke to the people around him and would ask them questions and engage them where they're at. He didn't have this rote presentation that he's going to bang. Okay, I'm just going to go through this now with you. No, he met them where they were, right? And would share the gospel with them. I often say, especially I said this to Chuck a lot in the internship as he's learning to preach and growing that. I would say that preaching is this. Preaching is biblical truth on fire in your soul uh, through your personality. It's the same with evangelism. Evangelism is biblical truth on fire through your personality. When you defend the faith, do it in accordance with how God has wired you. Maybe you're very quiet. Maybe you're a very quiet uh, personality. Then use your natural, gentle tone. Maybe you're witty. Then use your wit. Maybe you're humorous. Use your, use your humor. Maybe you're extroverted. Then let your excitement come through. Maybe you have the gift of hospitality. Then melt people with your kindness and love. Use your personality. Speak with gentleness and respect. Don't Bible thump them. Meet them where they are. Listen to them. Engage them gently, respectfully. Answer their questions. Listen well. And let the Lord do his work. Number five, maintain a clear conscience. As you seek to uh, strive uh, to put these priorities in place, number five, maintain a clear conscience. That's what verse 16 says, having a good conscience. Now, I kind of wrestled with that a little bit this week as I studied this. Uh, like, why does, why does Peter bring that up, the, the good conscience part, until it kind of hits me again? It's not just what you say or how you say it, but what kind of life are you living? Do you have a, a good conscience? In other words... It means you should be living such a godly life that if people criticize you, they have to lie to do it. Did you catch that? You're so zealous for good works and you're living for the Lord Jesus Christ that when people slander you and criticize you, to do it, they have to make up stories about you just like they did to who? Jesus. Having a good conscience means you have not by your own, but not by your conduct contradicted your message. You've acted consistently with your confession. As you think about that, if you, if you name Christ, I'm a follower of Christ, but you're living in unconfessed, unrepentant sin, that makes it very difficult to do what? To witness. How can you proclaim the excellencies of Christ and his forgiveness if you yourself are living in sin? If you yourself know that, well, the Word of God says this, and I'm doing this, and I'm not doing anything about it, that makes you very ineffective as a witness, doesn't it? You start to undo what you say with your words, with your actions. So, have a good conscience. There's more I could say that's in your notes, but I'm going to push to number six. Be courageous. 
be courageous. <clears throat> Verse 16 goes on to say, When you were slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Did you catch that in verse 17? Sometimes it's God's will that you suffer for doing good. That means be courageous, doesn't it? If you're zealous for good works, there's a chance that it's God's will that you suffer for doing those good works. And we talked about that a little bit already. But remember, Peter is writing to a society, a context which there's slander, there's ridicule about the Christians. We're living in that same kind of society today. You need to be courageous. Courageous in Christ, focused on Christ. And Peter is a wonderful example of this. Remember how Peter was waiting in the courtyard while Jesus is being unjustly attacked? Remember that? He's in the high priest's courtyard. He's being examined. And Peter's out, out in the, the courtyard of the high priest. And what's he do? He denies Christ how many times? Three times, right? Each time, with more enthusiasm, he denies Christ. He does not do it gently or respectfully, <laughs> Right? He is initially the living embodiment of how not to do apologetics, how not to defend the faith. The servant girl comes up to him and with very awful language, no, I have nothing to do with that, with that guy, right? But then remember a little bit after Pentecost, the spirit comes down, fills him, Acts chapter 3 or 4, I don't quite remember, but he's standing before the same people who were examining Christ. And they have some things to say to him, and Peter, with great boldness and courage, turns around and says, you crucified Christ. And they say, stop preaching Christ. And he says, I obey God, not man. What a change. So if you've heard all this this morning, and you're still like, no way, I can't do this. God can do it in you and through you as you humble yourself before him. He'll fill you with courage. He'll fill you with his spirit. So very quickly, defending the faith in your circle of relationships. That's point, point number two this morning, defending your faith in your circle of relationships. We talked about the priorities of defending the faith. We talked about how to do that. Uh, but reality is you can be really, really good at defending the faith, but if you're never talking to anyone or interacting with anyone, it really doesn't matter, <laughs> right? Uh, so just this idea of defending the faith in your circle of relationships. And for this, I would recommend to you what I call everyday evangelism. Everyday evangelism is just simply living on mission for Christ with great intentionality, that wherever you are, and I've said this to you so many times before, that wherever you are, you are on mission for Christ. You're not going to the gas station to get gas. You are there on mission as an ambassador of Christ, yes? You're not going to Dollar General because you ran out of diapers. You're going to Dollar General because you ran out of diapers, but also because you're on a mission for Christ. You are there to have that salt and light influence. You're there to show that hope. You're there to be zealous for good works. So people who see are like, man, there's, there's something weird about that guy. Right? That's the idea. That's everyday evangelism. Always on mission for Christ. It's not about me. I'm on mission for him to make disciples and make disciples. How do we, how do, we do that? I have those four eyes. 
identify, intercede, invest, invite. We believe in a sovereign God, right? Amen? A sovereign God. It is no accident that you live here in Barrie or Allegan County with the people who live around you. It is no accident. God has sovereignly, wisely, strategically placed you and this church here. So I think it's very wise and prudent to think about your web of relationships and think about how God can use you to defend the faith in those webs of relationships. So consider, I I put in your notes, these five categories. There's the familial, which are the people in your family. There's the geographical, the people in your neighborhood. Vocational, which are the people at your workplace, or if you're in school, those are, those are uh, people at your school. Recreational, people you play with or hang out with. Maybe you're on the sports team. And commercial, that's like when you go to Walmart or Myers or all these, wherever you go. Think about those, those five categories. That's, that's this web, this circle of influence that God has placed you in. And I want you to identify one person in each one of those categories that God is laying on your heart, maybe even right now as you think about it, and write their name in there. And what you're going to do next is you're going to start interceding for them. That's the second I. Start praying for them. We just said it. God changes hearts, not you. But pray for God to change their hearts. The easiest and the best thing you can do is pray for them. You do your best evangelism on your knees. C.S. Lewis, a great apologist, defender of the faith, he said this, I have two lists of names in my prayers, those for whose conversions I pray for and those for whose conversions I give thanks the little trickle of transference from list A to list B is a great comfort. Do you have those two lists? A list of those who you're praying, those, those five people, those who you're praying for God to save, and list B, those who you give thanks to God when he does it. And he's right. My goodness, there is no greater joy than seeing someone turn from their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Spurgeon, who I love, I talk about all the time, used to say, even if I didn't believe in the gospel, I would go around telling people about Jesus all the time because it makes me so happy. (laughs) That's awesome. He truly revered Christ in his heart. So you identify them, you pray for them. The third eye, you invest in them. You're zealous for good works. You seek to make sure that your conduct backs up the words that you're saying. You have a good conscience before them. Uh, You strive to stand out like light on top of a hill. You walk wisely. You walk gently. You walk circumspectly. You walk respectfully. You treat people uniquely uh, at your workplace, at your school, uh, on a sports team, or those kind of things. You just seek to invest with them and rub shoulders with them because that's what Jesus did, right? Jesus was always on this mission, always rubbing shoulders with people and connecting with people and talking with people, investing in their lives, hanging out at their house for dinner, for lunch, pointing them to salvation. It's not about just rubbing shoulders with them, though, just trying to be a cool guy, but for you invite. You've got to share the gospel with them. Faith comes by hearing. It's important that you have a good conscience and you have godly conduct and you're zealous for good works, but you've got to open your mouth out of love for Jesus and start boasting and bragging about him and his great salvation.
that no matter your sin, there is forgiveness full and free. If he can save a sinner like me, he can save anybody. And so you invite them. You invite them to place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You invite them to turn from their sin and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know what? They might reject it. You know what you keep doing? You keep interceding and you keep investing. There's that old movie. Maybe you guys remember, if you've seen it, uh, the one about, I forget the name of it, but, oh, The Field of Dreams, where they would say, if you build it, they will come, Right? That's a great tagline for that movie that is terrible ecclesiology apologetics. It's not if you build it, they will come biblically. For, biblically for us, it's you go to them and you share the gospel with them. Most unbelievers have no interest in coming to church on Sunday morning. Simply offering a good product. Like, like no one's going to wake up on a Sunday morning and go, hey, let's go to Orangeville. I hear they have great coffee. Right? They're for sure not going to come and be like, well, that Pastor Andrew is such a cool guy. Good, only a few of you laughed at that one. All right. I was just testing. I was putting feelers out there. for. But they're definitely not going to do that. They're not going to come because they're like, man, that worship is just, I got to get into that worship. I'm not in any way dissing our worship. I'm just saying unbelievers are not thinking about that stuff. They're not waking up Sunday morning like, hmm, where should I go to church today? It's not about a good product. Those who turn up on Sunday morning usually show up because someone brought them. Usually they wake up and they say, let's go to Orangeville this morning because that guy I work with, there's just something different about him and I got to find out why. Or that kid I go to school with, there's just something different about her and I, man, I, I got to go and figure out what that is. That's defending the faith. Your life is the ultimate apologetic. As you live for the Lord Jesus Christ and you intercede and invest and invite, the Lord plants seeds, the Lord gives the increase, and they come to faith in Christ. Amen? So Orangeville Baptist Church, let's go forth from here, defending the faith, defending the hope. 